Last 5% Media. On this podcast, we discuss details of crimes that are often violent in nature. In addition, historical audio and original interviews include outdated language to describe sex workers. Listener discretion is advised. The word whore is, is still used to keep other women in line, all women. Even at the height of the American sexual revolution, sex workers face mistreatment from law enforcement and widespread social stigma. In response, Margot St. James, a self-described sex-positive feminist, founded Coyote, Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, to promote the rights of sex workers. In a video interview from the 1980s, she explained what motivated her. The punishment of the prostitute is is uh, the example set by the system that if you don't, you know, act right, bow down to men, I suppose, that uh, you'll get what's coming to you. I didn't belong in this world, but that's where I was. In 1977, Lois Lee, a psychology student, was in San Francisco for an academic conference. Across the street from her hotel, the first National Hookers Convention was in progress. So she went over to check it out. There, she met Margot St. James. Margot said to me, you're not a prostitute, you can't be a spokesperson, but here I want to introduce you to these ACLU lawyers. After the convention, St. James introduced Lee to lawyers from the Oakland, California chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. They had sued the city's police department for not arresting Johns, the customers of sex workers, and only arresting the women. And they suggested that I sue LAPD for not arresting uh, the customers of the prostitutes. And I thought that was a wonderful idea. Back in Los Angeles, Lee dove into her subject. That's where she met 18-year-old Yolanda Washington. I met Yolanda Washington on Sunset in Detroit. In 1977, probably early in the year. A few months later, Los Angeles police arrested Yolanda and charged her with prostitution. She pled guilty and accepted a 10-day sentence at the Sybil Brand Institute, the L.A. County Jail for Women. Outside the courtroom, Lee gave Yolanda her card. A month later, a friend of Yolanda's called Lee. You know that girl you tried to help get out of jail? And I said, yes. She said, she's dead. I'm Joseph Rodota. I first encountered the Hillside Strangler case 30 years ago in my former career as a political opposition researcher. In this podcast, I revisit 10 murders that terrorized Los Angeles in 1977 and 1978 and the longest murder trial in U.S. history. They were college students. They were young girls. There were children that came from stable families. I think the hardest thing for me is that whole thing, like the first victim, you know, the black girl, the prostitute. From Last 5% Media, this is Hillside. Chapter 2, A Few Seconds. a wonderful place to uh, grow up. It was kind of like a um, 
little larger than Mayberry, it seemed like to me. It was a good, safe city. My mother never even locked the front door. This is Joe Chester. He grew up in Glendale, a middle-class, mostly white city, about 20 minutes north of downtown Los Angeles. After community college, he joined the Glendale Police Department as a uniformed police officer. The police department was really um, old-fashioned. When I got there, we had a, um, what do you call, switchboard. All the calls for anybody in that building came through the switchboard, you know, where you pulled out those little wires and plugged them in. The chief changed all that, and he got it so everybody had direct phone lines and um, started modernizing the cars. Glendale was just 33 square miles. About 130,000 people lived there. Although the opening of a new shopping mall in the early 1970s brought traffic and some shoplifting, crime wasn't much of a problem. You could be up there all day long and not get a call. Early on November 6, 1977, in a quiet wooded part of Glendale, a jogger spotted a body down an embankment near the Chevy Chase Country Club and called the police. It was a Sunday, and um, I was assigned a robbery homicide, but we didn't have any um, pagers or, um, of course, no cell phones or anything like that. November 6th happened to be my daughter's birthday, and we had taken her, I don't remember where, but we weren't home, so I missed the call. The next morning, Glendale Detective Chester arrived at the station. He learned about the deceased young woman. Her name was Lisa Caston. She was 20 years old. As far as we could find, she had no connection to Glendale. The location of a murder, or if that's unknown, where the victim is discovered, determines which law enforcement agency investigates the crime. I mean, she could have been missing from Sacramento, and it still would have been our case because of where the body was found. Detective Chester and another officer began their investigation by going to Lisa's apartment in Hollywood. It was one of those older buildings, probably built in the early 20s or something, but it was a stucco building. You go up a, a set of steps, and then you enter a door, and then there's a hallways inside. She lived on the second story near the rear of the building. And um, it was a typical small old apartment. The detectives waited inside for a member of the department's crime lab to arrive and take photos and dust for fingerprints. A suitcase lay open on the bed. She was packing for a move to San Francisco where she planned to attend community college. And um, I remember going into the kitchen and um, on the table was a, a list. It was like a, not a shopping list, but a, a list of things to do. And I remember looking at the list and it said, tell my dad that my car puffs dark smoke. I remember asking one of my aunts, like, was my mom, you know, really a prostitute? And her saying, well, aren't we all prostitutes? Aren't all of us women, one time or another, have to do something that we don't want to do? 
that's that wasn't <laughs> that was still wasn't like a good answer, you know, like, you know, I really like wanted answers. This is Mika Mercado. She was two and a half years old when someone murdered her mother, Yolanda Washington. As she was growing up, she sometimes heard people badmouth her mother and gossip about what she did for money. That was always like a rumor for me in my life, was never uh, confirmed when I would ask about it. In an L.A. Times article from December 1977, she learned for the first time that the LAPD had arrested Yolanda. But I was like really surprised. And then reading the article and then hearing that, you know, my mom was in uh, jail at one point, I was just kind of like, wow, you know, like this was, I guess, the confirmation. Mika's family told the LA Times reporter they learned about Yolanda's record only when a detective visited and told them she was dead. Like, that's pretty bad. Like, if she was in jail like that for neither one of my grandmothers to know, you guys couldn't have been caring about her that much and couldn't have been that much of a support system for her if you guys didn't know. She felt her family had looked the other way and didn't do enough to keep Yolanda safe. I would just feel better if people just say, I dropped the ball. I checked out. So she was only 18 years old, like, I don't understand this, you know, and why was anybody there? She demanded more details from her aunt and her grandmother. They denied they'd ever spoken to a reporter from the Times. And they were like, we never did any interview, we never did any favor. For somebody to straight out, bold-faced lie to you, a bold-faced lie. There was a parking lot nearby where she would have parked her car. Our thinking was that they followed her outside or they um, found out what car she was driving and followed her. That's Glendale Detective Joe Chester. He investigated the murder of Lisa Caston, the Hillside Strangler's third victim. Chester and another officer headed to Health Fair, the natural foods restaurant in Hollywood where Lisa worked as a waitress. They wanted to interview her co-workers. And I remember it was at night because we were trying to find people that might have been working this, I guess, the same shift that she did. And we located um, the witness there that said that she had been talking to these two dark-complected, dark-haired guys. And um, that this was shortly before she was abducted. Chester figured Lisa was a waitress and a prospective college student with no connection at all to the Hollywood street scene. But then some of the other um, victims we found out were involved in that sort of thing. So we started talking to some of the people down in Hollywood and um, a lot of um, prostitutes and you'd be surprised how um, friend, not friendly, but helpful they became because they were all scared to death. The detective kept asking these leading questions about uh, was she promiscuous? Did she have a lot of boyfriends? How was she with men? And I kept going, she was not interested. This is Yana Nirvana. 
she and Lisa were close. She was not promiscuous. She was not very sexually active. And it irritated me the way the detective kept trying to push that. There's been all this feminist literature about how whenever women start being killed, they always try to make them into prostitutes. You know, because A, that's somehow reflecting on the they deserve it, A, and B, regular women won't be scared. It placates the great American public. Oh, well, I'm not a prostitute, so I'm not at risk, right? Except you are, in fact, at risk because they're not going after prostitutes. Lisa and Yana were dancers, good enough to appear on the popular TV show Soul Train. They performed at L.A. music clubs like The Troubadour and opened for Frank Zappa at the Forum. When you're a dancer, you have a totally different relationship with your body. Your body is, you know, this gift. It's like your instrument. Like It's like a violinist would never screw around with his, with his violin. You wouldn't... Your body means so much more to you as a dancer, and you would not violate it. And that's how she felt about it. You know, she was her body, her body was her instrument, and she would not... You know, she's not going to let people climb around on it for money. You can't turn her into a whore. I mean, they're working their case. We're keeping in contact as to any potential developments. That's L.A. County Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno. While he and his partner continued their investigation into the murder of Judy Miller, Glendale PD followed up leads in Lisa Caston's case. LAPD handled Yolanda Washington's murder. Everything changed at the start of Thanksgiving week, 1977. Because all of a sudden, bodies just started dropping. On Sunday, November 20th, just after 10 in the morning, a woman walking her dog in a hilly L.A. neighborhood called Highland Park discovered the nude body of a woman under a small tree. When LAPD investigators arrived on the scene, they noticed ligature marks on the victim's neck, wrists, and ankles. Uh, again, here we go, but we've got a nude female dumped, and we've got the, the ligature marks. So we've got, we've got a tie-in to the first two. There was no sign the victim had been dragged from the road to where she was found. Police suspected someone, probably two men, had removed her from a car before speeding back down the hill. She was later identified as Christina Weckler, 20, an honor student at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. Friends told the LA Times Christina had no connection to the Hollywood street scene and had been extremely cautious in recent weeks after reading and hearing about the murders of three young women. Later that afternoon, a nine-year-old boy was playing in a trash heap near Dodger Stadium. He spotted something. At first, he thought they might be two department store mannequins, but something just didn't seem right. He went home to get his brother, and they went back to the trash pile. The older boy recognized right away that these weren't mannequins. They were bodies. Maybe the two girls who'd been missing for more than a week. Since Sunday morning, the bodies of three other young girls, aged 12, 
14 and 20 have been found within a few miles of this spot. The coroner's office identified the youngest of the two victims as Dolly Cepeda, 12, just one month shy of her 13th birthday. Dolly was a straight-A student at a private middle school in South Pasadena. She was really smart, a friend told the LA Times. She was friendly, too, always nice to everybody. The older victim, Sonia Johnson, 15, was a ninth grader at St. Andrews High School, a Catholic school for girls. Sonia's father told the Los Angeles Times she had a crush on the rock star Sean Cassidy and was thinking she might want to grow up to be an orthodontist. Sonia wore braces. Although you could see the ligature marks. Detectives immediately recognized the indentations, ligature marks, someone left behind on their necks, wrists, and ankles. The Sunday before Thanksgiving, the Hillside Strangler had claimed six victims. At that point, it was like the top got blown off, uh, you know. I have memories of, like, I guess you could say she was a reporter. Mika Mercado still remembers something that happened during the trial of the man who murdered her mother, Yolanda Washington. I just remember as a little girl, like, getting out of the car with my aunt, and this lady jumps out and just like, you know, how do you feel about the murder of your sister? You know, trying to talk to my aunt, and my aunt's, like, walking away, telling me to come on. As an adult, reading about her mother's arrest, Mika wondered whether even looking for information had been a mistake. Would my life have been better if, like, I would have never known, you know? She understood why her family kept this from her, but it still made her angry. It's hard because I imagine they were going through pain, but they didn't talk to me about it. No one ever talked to me about it. That's where I feel like I'm stuck, where I'm still just like a little girl stuck in that, in that respect. She turned off her computer and stepped away. A week passed before she turned it back on. Just, I just needed to go out and just find facts. A lot of it just being able to have closure and being able to, you know, um, move on. Mika soon found another LA Times article. She read about a woman who tried to help Yolanda Washington. That woman's name was Dr. Lois Lee. I wish I could come here and give you some good news. Unfortunately, I cannot. Apparently, he is very good. Uh, he uh, has certainly not left us uh, the kind of evidence that we would need to make a direct connect up. Uh, if he had, we, uh, we would have him in jail today. This is Daryl Gates. He spent 43 years in the Los Angeles Police Department. He was born in Glendale and attended public schools in the Highland Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. After serving in the Navy, he joined the LAPD. He rose through the ranks and directed the investigations into Robert F. Kennedy's assassination in 1968 and the Manson family murders in 1969. In 1975, he became number two in the department after police chief Ed Davis. He was a headline seeker to a degree. Jim Mitchell, the news radio reporter. He always was coming off with these off-the-wall 
suggestions about how we were going to fight crime. He, at one point, he wanted to, uh, he wanted the city council to uh, finance the purchase of a submarine to interdict drug supplies coming in from Mexico. By this time, Gates had spent more than half his life with the LAPD. And he was always making very quotable statements, you know, about how law enforcement should be operating and so forth. And, and uh, basically, Dred would gender a tough guy profile when it came to crime. On the morning of November 23, 1977, LAPD Deputy Chief Gates launched the Hillside Strangler Task Force to coordinate the investigations. Investigators say they're following up every lead. More than 400 tips from citizens have been received so far, but there is still no suspect. The police department has issued warnings to young women not to hitchhike or walk alone, especially at night. As Gates was announcing the task force, a few miles away, a highway maintenance worker found the nude body of a woman on an off-ramp of the southbound Golden State Freeway. Her name was Jane King. She was 28, an aspiring actress. She was last seen around 11 o'clock on the night of November 9th as she was leaving the Church of Scientology Celebrity Center, where she took acting classes. Uh, she'd been missing for a while, and it was obvious she was... Her body was in a state of decomposition when she was found. An LAPD spokesman said it appeared her body had been dumped in the bushes several days before. Her autopsy revealed something all too familiar. Ligature marks on her neck, wrists, and ankles. Uh, her body was in pretty bad shape, although you could see some evidence of what, what we were looking for. In the first week of operation, people phoned 334 clues to the Hillside Strangler Task Force. The Glendale Police Department handled the 17 tips related to Lisa Caston's case. Glendale Detective Joseph Chester tracked down a possible witness to Lisa's abduction. I think it was one of her neighbors that lived in the apartment building or nearby that saw what he thought was her car and this guy either in it or standing next to it at the rear of her building. Detectives brought this neighbor to Glendale Police Headquarters. A sketch artist and a hypnotist joined them. And this witness was hypnotized, and they came up with this sketch that, I mean, it was professionally done, but to me, it didn't have a huge amount of detail. The sketch depicts a man with long hair and a mustache. He had olive-colored skin and signs of severe acne. His hair was long, extending over his collar, and he had a receding hairline. And the chief of police decided that we should put that out to the media because he was, you know, they were under a lot of pressure. The police sketch ran in newspapers and on the evening news throughout Southern California. All these clues started coming in. And so we basically got overwhelmed. I mean, there was more than um, we could do. A dog barked around 10.30 the night of November 28th. 
Its owner, a middle-aged woman, woke up. She looked out her bedroom window and saw two cars parked on the street in front of her house. One was large, either black or dark blue, with a light-colored top. She thought it looked like a police car. As a door in the large car opened, a dome light went on and she saw two men inside. She turned to her nightstand to light a cigarette and put her glasses on, and then she looked outside again. She saw both men standing in the street beside the smaller car. When the light inside that car switched on, she saw a young woman. One of the men reached in and pulled the woman's hands off the steering wheel. The men dragged the woman out of her car and into theirs. She said something like, you won't get away with this. One of the men said, come along quietly. And they drove away. And the woman inside the house took off her glasses, stubbed out her cigarette, and went back to bed. That same night, her neighbors across the street, Joe and Judy Wagner, left a living room light on for their daughter, Lauren. In the morning, Joe Wagner noticed the living room light was still on. Lauren hadn't come home the night before. He placed two phone calls, one to a girlfriend of Lauren's and another to her boyfriend to see if they knew where she was. They didn't. Then he went outside to pick up the morning paper. He saw his daughter's red and white 67 Mustang parked across the street. The driver's side was open. The key was in the ignition and the interior light was on. I went back to the neighbors again and asked the neighbors if they had seen how long her car was there. This is Joe Wagner, Lauren's father. He told a TV news crew he spoke with a middle-aged woman across the street. And they had seen somebody in another car close by, stop and escort my daughter out. That's when he called the LAPD. She's that close to home and knowing danger, as she has known of this danger, they had to force her out. I can't imagine their, my feeling, my gut feeling that she was taken forcibly. 20 miles away in LA's Mount Washington neighborhood, a man driving home saw a body plainly visible on the side of the road. They were college students. They were young girls. There were children that came from stable families. This is Jim Mitchell, who reported for an all-news radio station in L.A. People would die on Hollywood Boulevard all the time from drug overdoses, from murders, and so forth. And they weren't given the same attention. But when, when the murders began happening in the San Fernando Valley and the victims were from middle-class families, that's when the thing blew up. The city council offering an award or reward for information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the suspect or suspects in these cases. The L.A. County Board of Supervisors and the L.A. City Council offered a combined $100,000 for information leading to the arrest of the killer. 
Private donations helped boost that amount to 140,000. Police are hoping that the offering of a large reward will bring about an arrest, which will put an end to the fear. More than 1,000 people filled rape prevention classes in Glendale in a single week. The oldest woman was 84. The youngest participant, a 10-year-old girl. A sales clerk quit her job at a shopping mall jewelry store because she was too frightened to leave the place at night. A nurse began carrying a steak knife whenever she left the house. When a local university offered a six-hour class in self-defense, a thousand women wanted to sign up, but the classroom could fit only 67. Take car keys to the eyes, knees to the groin, um, break an elbow, you know, fracture a rib, whatever they can do to, to dismantle the guy from running. Gun sales skyrocketed. And black market CS gas, a form of tear gas, sold briskly at $10 a canister. I guess I just want to learn how to maybe give myself a few seconds so I can live. By December 7th, the Hillside Strangler Task Force had fielded more than 1,000 clues. Even though the outfit had grown to more than 50 sworn officers by then, Everyone was swamped. In its first floor offices in LAPD headquarters, two yellow coffee pots percolating nonstop couldn't keep up with demand. There are 55 officers that work full time on the series of murders, and they would welcome a break. We'll always accept a lucky break and be very appreciative of it. A lucky breaks uh, help you crack them sooner. LAPD detectives interviewed the middle-aged neighbor across the street from Joe and Judy Wagner. She told police she saw, through her bedroom window, two men take a young woman out of her car and drive away. The Hillside Strangler Task Force reports to Deputy Chief Daryl Gates clearly indicate from that moment forward, police were looking for two male suspects. Local media speculated that two cops, or two men posing as cops, were on a killing spree. Valley girl slain by bogus police, one headline asked. Los Angeles police are investigating one theory that the attacker may be posing as a plainclothes officer in a police car. So they have issued an unprecedented warning to women drivers stopped by officers. Be certain of the identification of the occupants. Uh, even to the extent of continuing to roll and asking to see identification and badge. So then we knew we had a starting point. This is Detective Frank Salerno of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. He led the investigation into the murder of Judy Miller. He had noticed the similarities between Judy's wounds and those of Lisa Caston when he saw both women side by side in the coroner's office. Because you could almost measure where the ligature marks were on each victim. And even though this one, uh, this wrist is bigger than that, they're almost in exactly the same spot. Something else about these marks stuck in his mind. From the looks of it, the victims hadn't struggled. You're first approached by a police officer in uniform or whatever. You, you, you know, you might be nervous, but there's no resistance when it was disclosed that the striations on the women's wrists were exactly the same kinds of striations that would be led, left by police handcuffs. 
And that created a huge panic. News radio reporter Jim Mitchell. And, you know, the police department was saying, well, if you're followed by a police car and if you're at all suspicious, go to the nearest police station. The question then became, what do you do when you're stopped by the police? LAPD launched a sting operation. Young women undercover officers walked the streets alone as decoys. Plain clothes officers watched from unmarked cars. The LAPD, they had everybody and their dog out there covering just about every city block in the hills, waiting. Someone else was stalking the streets of Hollywood. Yeah, I was furious. I mean, I was, I was really angry about it, you know? I'm like, why don't you come and try to get somebody your own size, see what happens. Late into the night, Yana Nirvana walked around Hollywood, hoping to confront whoever had killed her friend, Lisa Kasten. So I was out wandering around with my 22. Probably not the smartest thing in the world, but come and get me, guys. I'll put an end to you. With a gun in her purse, she waited. Being a street prostitute is probably one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Getting raped is, and, and then they're not even recognized as women who can be raped. And if they get beaten up, the police say, well, you asked for it. You don't like that? Don't do that anymore. Lois Lee became an expert on all aspects of the sex industry in L.A. at the time. She learned how pimps manage the women who work for them, where madams service the business and political elite of Los Angeles why escort services might have looked safer than streetwalking, but really weren't. There was a big problem with escort services because the girls had realized that the operators of the escort services were sending them out to calls where they knew they were going to get beaten up. They also uh, knew that sometimes the girls were going to get killed. One sex worker decided to start her own escort service with different rules designed to keep the women safer. When the guys called to ask a girl to come out, she was going to verify their address in the Thomas Guide. That's a spiral-bound map of addresses for major cities. Before the age of smartphone apps and GPS, it was the best way to look up any street address. And she said to me she was going to have the girls, when they go out to the location, to call back and say that the guy's okay. She took great pride in screening the customers. Around 8.30, the night of December 13, 1977, a man called Climax Nude Modeling. He saw an ad in the Hollywood Free Press promising young, lovely, sexy girls who would go to your home, office, or motel. Describe your dream girl, the ad read, and she'll be on her way to you immediately. The man gave his name. He said his wife was out of town. And he asked for a pretty blonde model possibly wearing black stockings and a black dress. That will be no problem, the escort service manager replied. I can have a girl with you in about 15 minutes. She asked the man to confirm the spelling of his last name and provide his phone number. When he said the number, 4629794, she grew suspicious. The fourth digit was a nine. Sir, that's a payphone, she said. The man laughed. A lot of people seem to think that, he said. The escort manager confirmed the address, 
They agreed on $40 for a modeling session. The man said he would pay in cash. Later that evening, the manager of the escort service called Lois Lee. And she tells me that she sent a girl out to meet a guy. And the girl did not call back. And the guy's not answering his phone now. Hillside is a production of Last 5% Media. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by me, Joseph Rodota. Our executive producers are Chris George and Joaquin Alvarado. Caitlin Bruce is our producer. Adam Mellion is our research director. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Julie Checkaway and Robert Saladay served as consulting producers. Our sound engineers are Jeremy Dalmas and Craig Thomas. Craig is also our composer. Edgar Guerra designed our logo and website. Special thanks to the Center for Inquiry Libraries in Buffalo, New York, the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University, the Mainsfield Library at the University of Montana, and the Warnicke Ranch Artist Residency. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information about this episode, visit our website, hillsidepodcast.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.